This is the Progressive Britain History Project, part of the Progressive Britain podcast. In each episode, we look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past, with the aim of promoting a clearer understanding of its contested history, perhaps busting a few myths on the way, introducing some new ways of thinking and making connections between Labour's history, its present and possible future. Um, my name is Stephen Fielding. I'm uh, an emeritus professor of political history at the University of Nottingham. And my co-presenter is Laura Beers, who's professor of history at the American University, Washington. So hello from me. Hello, Steve. And hello, hello to you, Laura. And hello to our listener. Um, now, today, in this episode, we're going to talk about the Labour Party and its relationship with the trade unions. And to help us uh, navigate this uh, especially contested um, part of Labour's, Labour's history, um, Andrew, um, Andrew Thorpe has kindly agreed to join us. Andrew is Professor of, is it just history or are you Professor of something much more specialised, Andrew? Modern history. Modern history keeps it all covered, keeps it all covered, right, at, at the University of Leeds. And he is author of what I would, I don't think it would be very controversial to say, is, is probably now the definitive single uh, volume book about the history of the Labour Party. Um, very usefully called A History of the British Labour Party, which, I mean, first published in 1997, but it seems to have been around for like a long, long time because it's been continuously updated and is now on its fourth edition. And Andrew, you've got plans to, because it goes up to 2015, doesn't it? You're going to update it. Yeah, it goes up to just before the 2015 election. So uh, quite a lot's happened in the Labour Party since then, but there's never really been a, you might say, a particularly steady state at which you could take a good perspective backwards over the last few years. So, um, I kind of intend to probably update it with a view to uh, the Starmer government, which uh, may well follow the next general election. Yes, may well, may well. That may not be such a such a hard prediction at the moment, anyway. But let's let's see. So, so, so we're going to talk about the unions, and 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 we can talk about the Starmer leadership and the trade unions a bit later on. But for the sake of our listener, it might be useful, given there's so many myths. Um, and legends about the Labour Party and its relationship with the trade unions that that live on to today. Um, I just thought it'd be quite just a useful starting point just to um, ask ask Andrew. I mean, given that you know there are many on the left, particularly on the left, but not just on the left of the Labour Party, who who today claim and many have always claimed Labour was created by the unions. Um, there's a famous quote um, from Ernest Bevan that said the Labour Party. And it's a lo- lovely visceral quote. It emerged out of the bowels of the Labour movement, which for me, that sounds a double-edged metaphor, really. I'm not <laughs> sure he meant it like that. But it emerged out of the stomach of um, of the trade union movement. Um, I just wondered as, you know, as a kind of like step, stepping off point, how important were the unions when the Labour Party was created? Well, one of Bevin's closest... Um collaborators during that period in the middle of the 20th century was Walter Citrine and he was the general secretary of the TUC and he said in a rather more dignified way that the um, Labour Party was created by the trade unions to do those things that were not being done for it by 
the two-party system, i.e. the Conservative and Liberal parties. And there is a lot of truth in the uh, argument that the unions were the prime movers in the creation of the early Labour Party in, in 1900. Um, they were the ones who brought the money, they brought the members, uh, and they brought the motivation because of the threats that were being made to the trade union's legal position at that time. But what's important to remember, of course, is that um, many of the trade unionists who were keen advocates of Labour politics were themselves also socialists, the first point. And the second point is that in any case, a lot of the idealism and drive that came with the creation of the Labour Party uh, and which sustained it uh, in many ways throughout its history did come from a, a rather different side of the movement. So it's a little bit more complicated than to say it's simply a creation of the unions, but without the unions at the same time, it wouldn't have been created. So you, mean, you mentioned money. I mean, is that the is that the main driving force for this for this relationship right at the start? I mean, or is there a a kind of um and because sometimes you get the sense that those people say Labour was created by the unions and and it therefore should still be at the heart. Of the union should be still at the heart of the what the Labour Party stands for. Um, I mean, how far was there really an overlap between? Those trade unionists, those trade unions that that supported Labour and other members of what is effectively kind of a broader coalition that that formed the party. Well, it was always a there was a kind of always an overlap between the two, but there were always trade unionists who weren't Labour people, and there still are, uh, and there were always Labour people who were not really trade unionists or who joined in a very tokenistic way. So it's always been a, a much more complicated picture than simply a sense that uh, that there was a, an identity between the two the two groups if you like um, unions were important though for the labor party in the early years and later on in all kinds of ways certainly financially they were the biggest financial contributors to the party um, and uh, have continued to be extremely significant in that respect um, but also in terms of membership in terms of uh, interest policy, uh, and personnel, of course, lots of the uh, leading figures in the Labour Party came from the trade union movement, but of course, lots of them didn't. Uh, and so, there, again, that, that sense that there isn't a direct overlap is really, is really important. Well, Andrew, do you want to talk a bit more as we're kind of doing the background story about other routes into the early Labour Party? Um, as opposed to the current Labour Party, where you can just become a member, right? Your roots into early Labour were through the trade unions, through the ILP, yeah. through various other societies. And do you want to talk a bit about the other constituent parts of the early Labour Party besides the unions that made up that coalition? Yeah, absolutely. So you've got a you've got a quite a rich blend, really, of uh, of different um, of different groups. You've got the uh, independent Labour Party. I mean, I'm sitting here at the moment, about four miles from. The centre of Bradford, where the ILP was was formed in 1893, um, that was a really important group, an ethical socialist group, which also contained many people who were uh, driven by by Mark, uh, some Marxist ideas. You had at the very beginning of the Labour Party the Social Democratic Federation, which was the British Marxist Party in effect, and which eventually became part of the Communist Party when it was formed in 1920. Um, you'd also got the Fabian Society, uh, much less working class. I mean, those two quite working class groups. Fabian Society, probably more middle class, more self-consciously intellectual, but which pr produced a, a disproportionate number of the 
early leading figures in the Labour Party. So there were a number of, of routes into Labour. I think the other thing to say, of course, about the unions is that, you know, we're talking about the unions as a single block, which to some extent they can be seen as, but they were very, very different, these unions. And certainly in the early years, the railway uh, unions, for example, were very early advocates, very keen supporters uh, of the party. The miners took rather longer to come on board. They remained liberal until pretty much the end of the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, and throughout the throughout the period of the history of the Labour Party, you've had unions that have very different interests. You know, um, white-collar unions, manual workers, um, people who worked in private industry. So, I mean, the engineers, for example, would be a classic example of a very strong union throughout Labour's history that's been very much... Um, in the private sector, um, whereas certainly from the 1940s onwards, people like the miners and railway workers were very much uh, in the public. So it, again, you know, a very very rich tapestry, I think, of interest. I mean, some some unions um, have got had very different interests, haven't they? I mean, just I mean, jumping ahead, I mean, um, a little bit, there was a big difference between some unions and having a, a statutory minimum wage, wasn't it? Because there was some unions are quite powerful. And their members are quite well paid, so they didn't really need to agitate for a minimum wage. And others in the public sector particularly did. Yeah. So they actually had a big difference. Um, and Labour had to kind of in the end negotiate that difference, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and that could be extremely challenging. Um, and, you know, if you think about, on the one hand, you've got to you know, deal with whether people are, are in unions or not, but then there was different interests between the different unions, then it really was, um, you know, at times very difficult for uh, for the party, for party leadership, uh, to find out where its true interests lay. So, yeah, I mean, it was, a bit, uh, you know, always a very uh, complex picture, I think. And in terms of that complexity, I mean, it also had a gender dimension, right? I mean, if we think about um, different trade unions and attitudes towards women's work, um, later towards the question of equal pay um, and how or towards um, family allowances in the 1930s. And we have this kind of image of the trade union as representing the respectable male head of household. Right? But it's a more complex picture than that, even from the early 20th century. Right? Do you want to sort of speak a bit to that as well? Yeah, very much so. I mean, if you were to characterize a trade, trade union movement in the early years of the Labour Party, it would be uh, manual male manual workers working in the private sector. If you were to characterise the trade union movement now to a large extent, it would be predominantly female, it would be white collar and it would be public sector. So that there has been over time a very significant shift in that. Um, but, you know, having said that, women trade unionists were always important. They just varied in importance between different uh, industries and therefore different trade unions. Um, and in the early, you know, the first 20 years or so of the, of the 20th century, of course, there were distinctive women's unions, the National Federation of Women Workers, for example. But they got absorbed during the interwar period into the, if you like, the mainstream unions. And the result of that, and I've done some work on this some years ago, one of the results of that was actually that women became less prominent during that period than they'd been prior to that. But after 1945, as women's employment increases, and certainly from the 1960s, 70s, as women's full-time employment increases, so the proportion of women who were unionised has increased 
significantly. Um, so again, uh, a really interesting dimension to the movement and the way in which it's changed over that time. I mean, to be to sort of, I mean, usually those that say that Labour was created by the unions and the unions should be remain at the heart of of the party. They, they, you know, the assumption is that this is a very positive thing uh, for the Labour Party. So just to be a sort of bit of a devil's advocate, um, there have been times, some of them, I mean, not just over the minimum wage when unions uh, collectively, not, not not all of them, um, have, haven't have sort of looked on some of Labour's sort of more progressive sort of policies um, and, and been very critical. I mean, equal pay for men and women was often um, opposed by certain trade unions. And, and when the Labour Party wanted to introduce um, legislation that addressed race, racism at the workplace, trade unions, as well as employers, um, actually opposed it uh, for a significant period. Yeah, I mean, uni- unions haven't always been as prog- progressive in their politics as, as one might uh, like to think, and there have been times when that's certainly been the case. Um, and I think, you know, one, one, of, one of the issues, and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about this, is the extent to which there is an identity of interest between the Labour Party and Labour governments uh, and trade unions. You know, Labour governments are there to run the country and to, you know, it's a very complex business, obviously, and, and, and involves lots of uh, many considerations. And the interests of trade unions uh, is only one of those uh, concerns. You know, unions, on the other hand, exist to represent the interests of their members. I mean, that's why people pay subscriptions to the union. So one of the issues has always been how far can you marry up those two things? How ca- how far can you uh, create uh, an identity of interest between the Labour Party, on the one hand, seeking to be in government or to stay in government, and the interests of union members on the other? And there'd be periods of real tension in that relationship, as, as you're both very well aware. You know, if we just take the example of the 1970s, for example, you know, where the um, Labour government from 1974 to 1979 comes in on the back of a major mining dispute, coal, coal miners strike in 73-74, um, tries to create uh, the sort of social contract, the idea that the unions will play uh, nicely with government, if you like, and they'll, they'll on the whole try to avoid uh, major industrial disputes if the government delivers social reforms on various things. And this is the famous social contract, of course. What happens by about 1977, 78 is the inflationary pressures in the economy mean that that um, agreement to try to dampen wage demands is increasingly difficult for the unions to deliver. Um, it culminates in the, of course, in the uh, famous winter of discontent in 1978, 79. Uh, and ultimately in the downfall of the, of the Callaghan government in, in March 1979. And that sense of, you know, trying to keep that identity of interest going was was really um, powerful uh, for, for that generation of Labour and trade union leaders. But in the end, they couldn't keep it. They couldn't sustain it. Andrew, you mentioned the kind of difficulties that the um, Callaghan government has in enforcing this social contract and particularly in enforcing wage restraint on trade unions at a time of rampant inflation. And as we look at our present moment of rampant inflation um, and increasing industrial action, including, it seems likely, 
um, amongst the Royal College of Nurses um, in the months to come. And we've obviously all felt the impact, myself included, when I was over in the UK last month of, of, of railway industrial action. But I mean, the trust government seems ill-poised in, in its attitude and empathy or lack thereof to, to negotiate a, um, an amicable solution with the unions. But at the same time, Starmer in opposition has not shown himself particularly eager to ally um, with the trade unions and has really kept his distance in particular from the railway strike. And what do you think the current dynamics in terms of the relationship between the labor leadership and the trade union movement in the face of this, again, moment of, of rising inflation and industrial unrest looks like? Well, it's a very challenging moment for Starmer, I think. Um, at the end of the day, in a cost of living crisis where inflation is kind of heading towards double digits and all the rest of it, um, workers will be looking to assert themselves to make sure that they're not left behind in that situation. And unions will be wanting to support their members and to lead their members in disputes, which will hopefully get them uh, better better wages. Um, the problem that Starmer's got, I think, is that many of those industrial disputes do impact on quite wide range of people, as you suggested. So if you take the railway strikes, there's always an issue with railway strikes or underground strikes in London, for example, um, which is that um, there are lots of potential Labour voters who will be inconvenienced by those disputes. So I think it is quite difficult um, for uh, the Labour leadership to um, navigate a way through that, really. Now, the obvious answer at one level is, of course, what Jeremy Corbyn said, which was basically that um, Labour would always support striking workers. And in many ways, um, I suppose kind of emotionally and viscerally, I, I would sympathise with that view. But the fact of the matter is that if you look at trade union membership um, across the country, it runs at about 23% of employed workers are in trade unions. That's down a long way. When Tony Blair came to power, I think it was about 32%. So it's gone down from just under a third to just under a quarter. Many of those trade union members would not necessarily be all that sympathetic with a railway strike anyway, because they'll be inconvenienced by it as well. So when you start to look at, you start to run those numbers, you start, I think, to get a rather different view of things. And I think the question for any Labour Party leader at the end of the day is, do you want to be in government or not? And my view is that Starmer, like Blair before him, does want to be in government. I think that's probably the right call. Um, but it does mean that there's a lot of sort of perturbation and temp, uh, you know, turbulence in the party as a result of that, because you will get people saying, you know, if it was me, I'd be on the picket line. And I think I'm right in saying that Andy Burnham said something like that a few days ago, that he kind of positioned himself slightly to the left of, of Starmer in quite an interest, I thought quite an interesting way, actually, uh, to, 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 to say that. But in a sense, it's easier for him to say that than it is for Starmer to say it. And if Burnham was leader of the Labour Party at the moment, he might be saying something rather different. And that's not to impugn his honesty or integrity. It's just the way it is. 
I mean, you mentioned the 1970s um, and and clearly there were tensions between the Labour government of that time during a, te- a period of economic difficulty, which is not entirely different to the one that we're, we're, we're living through. Maybe the Labour government would inherit. Um, and, and the way in which it wasn't really, well, ultimately it broke down. That relationship kind of broke down, at least with certain certain trade unions and and the party um but there are those that um that see what starmer is is his kind of orientation at the moment as being somehow out of out of sync with previous um labor leaderships and i i just wonder are there other other sort of moments from the past that kind of other other suggest he is out of sync he is you know this is a very different kind of leadership with a very different kind of relationship with the unions or maybe other instances which suggest actually this is a structural issue with any Labour leadership and any trade union movement at any time. It's always been challenging, hasn't it? I mean, if you go right back to the first Labour government in 1924, what was one of the first things they faced? It was a transport strike in London. Um, and the reason why Ernest Bevin thereafter always hated Ramsay MacDonald's guts was because the first Labour government had looked to uh, employ emergency legislation to uh, overcome the worst effects of, the stri- of, of that strike. Second Labour government in 1931 collapsed in part. Um, I've written about this more times than I care to remember, I think, but it collapsed in part because the trade unions wouldn't agree with the Labour government's approach to a severe financial crisis in the summer of 1931. Um, in the 1960s, you have the Wilson government with its attempts within place of strife to bring in a framework of legislation uh, around uh, trade union rights, uh, which that section of the Labour leadership, including, of course, crucially, Jim Callaghan, later Prime Minister, uh, who struggled with the trade unions, but but he joined with the trade union leaderships to effectively uh, neuter uh, in place of strife. I think What's interesting is, you know, we've talked about the 1970s. I think what's interesting is that there are two periods when the relationship seemed to go rather better. I mean, one is the 1940s. And in the 1940s, really, you know, under the Labour government from 1945 onwards, a government which delivered on lots of things that the unions wanted after a long time when Labour had been in the wilderness, uh, actually the unions were reasonably biddable, quite pliable, um, remember, of course, that strikes were outlawed for most of that period under the wartime order 1305. It was still illegal technically to go on strike. Um, but the government delivered lots of things for the unions and the unions reciprocated on the whole. And it's only really around 1949 with things like the London Dock Strike um, that, that things begin to go a little bit awry. But there's a long period there. And one of the things that's interesting about that period, of course, is that lots of the people who led the Labour Party down to the late 1970s kind of grew up politically in that period. People like Callaghan. Wilson was in the Cabinet, Callaghan was in Parliament. And they look back, they tend to look back to that period, I think, as a bit of a golden age. That was the kind of thing that you could do if you had a Labour government and a trade union movement marching sort of in, you know, step step to step kind of thing. Um so that was a successful period. I think actually also, though, the Blair period for, for a long time in, in, in New Labour, um, that that actually, again, was quite a successful period in terms of union labour relations. And again, in part, I think it was because Labour had been out of office for a long time. It had faced 
conservative governments that had been very, very hostile, uh, and that actually the union leaderships, to some extent, had drawn their horns in. They'd become less kind of global in their ambitions. They'd become rather more set on particular things. So, for example, running down to 1997, one thing, they, they wanted a Labour government, they wanted the national minimum wage in most cases, and they wanted statutory recognition uh, of union, the right to be a union member. Um, and, of course, the, all those things came about. Um, and that relationship between the unions and New Labour, while it had its moments, I think was was more successful than, say, it had been in the 1970s or, or latterly in the 1960s uh, governments. So... There's something I, I suspect, you know, if, if a Labour government does follow the next election, there will have been, again, a long period out of office. There will be, I think, a realisation on the part of lots of unions that Labour is the only game in town. I mean, they're not going to prefer a trust government, are they, or a Braverman government or whatever, whatever um, nightmarish prospects we can imagine. Um, so, you know, there, there will, again, I think, be that sort of pragmatic uh thing coming to the fore for lots of unions at that time. Well, on that, Andrew, I mean, we've had over the last several years, members of the left of the Labour Party and certain people within the left of the trade unions really demonizing the Blair government, right? I mean, you said in some ways that the Blair, the early years of the Blair government were a good example of Labour and the unions working together. And you had people like Alan Johnson and John Prescott with yeah. senior posts within the Blair government, right? Um, but in recent years, the, you know, Blair is seen as almost an equivalent of the Tories by many on the left, right? Um, and do you think in a sense that the emergence of trust and people like Braverman who are so sort of nakedly far to the right is making that false equivalency harder to sustain by those who who look back in the early 90s and see sort of something as bad as David Cameron? Or... Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, we'll, not, we'll not maybe go into the... Uh details of the of the Tory leadership at the moment perhaps sort of um it's so dynamic we don't know who'll be Tory leader by the time this comes out so yeah best not. <laughs> absolutely so we we probably need to draw a bit of a veil over that um I mean I think I think I mean one of one of the issues about Blair's retros- retrospective reputation of course is the war in Iraq and I think part of the problem there is for those who want to kind of see the good side of a new Labour and what it achieved, and on the domestic front, it certainly achieved a great deal. It achieved quite a lot internationally as well in in, in other parts of the world. But um, you know that that inevitably um, is a is a stick with which to beat Blair. And I think you know, and I think in many ways legitimately. I mean, I think we you know we, we shouldn't um, absolve him of responsibility for some of the uh, some of what what happened and and uh, in in Iraq and Afghanistan. But I mean, I think the key thing on the domestic side was that that relationship did endure. I mean, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that Blair or some of the Blairites anyway really wanted it to. I mean, you know, you will remember that there was a time in the late 1990s when um, people who were close to Blair were talking about the need to move away from the unions. Um, One of the key things there, actually going back to something we talked about earlier on, was money that the party could raise money in other ways. It could do it through a mass membership. And there was the Blair enrolment in the mid-1990s. The membership rose to about half a million. Um, there was also, of course, that sense that you could tap up wealthy 
benefactors and that they produce lots of money. The problem with that, of course, was that by about 2001, the individual membership of the party was falling again. And a lot of those individual benefactors, of course, proved to be problematic. I mean, we remember things like the um, uh, donation from Formula One boss, uh, Bernie Eccleston, for example, and the way that got confused into tobacco and advertising and all the rest of it. So there was, you know, the, the, there was a sense in which, you know, for want of anything better, really, the um, the party had go, had to go back to the unions again, and, and and that financial relationship had to continue. But it, but in reality, I think there was still enough identity of interest for the um, for the for the relationship to endure. Sandra, the I mean. There has been, however, I mean, to sort of build on what sort of what Laura was kind of maybe suggesting, there has been a, a shift in the politics, or at least there appears to have been a shift in the politics of certainly the biggest trade unions. So that in the 1950s, I mean, there was, was it the top five, the biggest five trade unions were like the Praetorian Guard of, of the Atlee leadership? Because as you were suggesting, you know, they were kind of grateful. You know, they've got a welfare state, a lot of, lot of industries nationalised, you know, commitments to full employment, NHS, all that kind of stuff. They, 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 they actually were bastions of the leadership against the left of the party. Um, and then the, there was a shift. Um, and it wasn't just, it was, you know, it obviously occurred before the, the Blair leadership. Um, but then it, towards the end of the Blair period, New Labour period, there were certain trade unions, particularly with members in the public sector, who did not like a lot of what Labour was trying to do, you know, introducing market mechanisms and things like that. And and since that point have been, you know, I mean, there would have been no Ed Miliband as Labour leader had certain key trade unions strongly backed him. Um, the members wanted David Miliband, the unions wanted um, Ed um, Ed Miliband, and and obviously certain key unions were very very important, although not not completely um, go along with him um, in everything like with nuclear um, energy and, and weapons or whatever, but were very important to the Jeremy Corbyn leadership, and and Sharon Graham and and others are kind of mapping out a you know a non Labour future. So I mean, how do you how do you explain? Them? I mean, the politics of those unions are well out of whack with that of their members, really. The leaderships of are on the left, but many of their members, you know, in 2019, um, voted for Brexit, voted for, for Boris Johnson. So how how is that kind of rather sort of strange de-alignment? Um, and within the party, how can that be kind of managed? It's a fascinating point, really important point. I mean, you know, in the final years of the athlete leadership, you've got the kind of big three, Tom Williamson, um, Arthur Deakin, Will Law, the general workers, uh, transport workers and miners, you know, and they were they were kind of dominant, very, very right wing. Um, I mean, that began to break up as early as the mid-1950s when Frank Cousins took over as leader of the Transport and General Workers Union. But, um, you know, that, that, that sense of a, of a, of a leftist, leftist leadership uh, is quite important. I mean, I think a couple of things that are important to stress there. I mean, one is that... Um, uh, that the um, politics of some of these leaders isn't also always the key thing that gets them elected. Sometimes it's the fact that they have considerable ability, that they're good at publicity, that they're kind of popular big characters, if you like. So, you know, we might say that someone like Len McCloskey, who was a 
massive supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, of course, and that many of his members uh, weren't necessarily in agreement with his politics, although many of them were. Um, but that what people liked about Len McCluskey wasn't necessarily the fact that he was a big supporter of Corbyn. It was that he was a kind of a big advocate for his union and for, and for the rights of the members of the union. Um, so sometimes, you know, people aren't voting for the politics as much as the activity that will follow from it. Uh, and you see that more, I mean, in a more historical sense, of course, with communists. I mean, communists would often get elected as shop stewards in factories and those kinds of things. And it wasn't necessarily because people thought, isn't it great that these people are communists? It was, isn't it great that they work really hard and, and, and put the hours in and, and organise strikes well and so on? Of course, the other thing to remember is that in all union elections, pretty much throughout time, turnout has been very, very low. Um, and that, you know, we don't, so that a lot of those people that you're talking about in terms of people who might have voted Tory in 2019 and voted for Brexit and all the rest of it weren't necessarily people that had, uh, would, would have voted in the elections for union leaders. So there is that disconnect. I think the other thing I'd say on this before I just, just pause is that, um, you know, there have been throughout the history of the Labour Party um, attempts to form left-wing unions that weren't affiliated to it or indeed to move unions away from Labour. Um, we saw it in the 1990s when, you know, Arthur Scargill and a number of others formed the Socialist Labour Party, for example. You see it in the interwar period with formation of a couple of communist breakaway unions in uh, Scotland, Scottish miners and also London tailors and garment workers and so on. So there are these examples of, of people moving away, but they're not on the whole being they're not on the whole being very successful. Well Andrew, picking up on both your comments about how the leadership of these um, trade unions is often elected on a very fairly narrow participation in those elections, but also thinking about the ways in which over time the role of trade unions in electing Labour Party leaders has changed, right? And you've seen a greater role for CLPs and individual membership um, over the last um, few decades. But again, you know, going back to Len McCluskey, he obviously had a, a major role as one of Corbyn's key backers. But I mean, is this a way in which the strength of the unions within the Labour Party is diminishing in that they're no longer the kingmakers um, who choose the party leaders? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Laura. And um, you're absolutely right. I mean, that that has changed quite significantly. Um, you know, the point about Ed Miliband's really quite interesting in 2010 when he is elected effectively on the back of the trade union vote in the Electoral College. But things have changed since then quite significantly. Um, I mean, in 2015, you know, Corbyn's victory was so sweeping in the end that... Um, you know, in a sense, all bets were off. I think, in terms of saying who, where was the particular strength, because he was he was strong everywhere except in the parliamentary party. I think, but um, uh, certainly uh, that that union role in the election of the leader does seem to be um, less significant now, and will be will be less significant in the future. You know, even before they introduced the electoral college in nineteen eighty, um, the uh, Unions had always played a big role in the election of the leader through the Parliamentary Labour Party because so many um, uh, so many MPs were union sponsored um, that they, there was something of an identity of interest there, not a complete identity of interest by any means, but 
it's hard to imagine, I think it's hard to imagine how many Labour leaders would have been uh, different if, if the mode of election had been different um, prior to 1980-81. Um, I think you can make an argument maybe about one or two, but I think maybe 1476 perhaps, but I, I'm not convinced by that. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is this is an example of where the relationship has, has kind of continued to be made and remade, really. Um, and I suppose it, it, it says something about that relationship. There are a lot of really weird metaphors for this relationship between the unions and the, and, and the party. The one I like least is, um, is the marriage metaphor, which always strikes me as kind of inherently uh, inappropriate and, and slightly depressing. Um, but, uh, you know, I think Lewis Minkin talked about the contentious alliance, which I think is quite a powerful way of looking at it. And I think that sense that it is a kind of dynamic process between the two sides, if you like, um, that it's a relationship that's constantly being made and remade. It isn't a question of a kind of um, a narrative arc from, you know, rise to fall or something like that, that it is something which is constantly being reviewed and rethought and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, and I think that's been the strength of it, actually. I think that, that ability... Of the of the relationship to be remade, um, while the remaking sometimes taking a lot of time, but eventually it's usually um, come out into something quite good. I think. But do you think that I mean, this looking at it kind of over over a century, this relationship has been going on for well over a century. That actually, it's we're we're, we're looking at kind of maybe the late stage of this relationship. It's kind of withering a little bit um i mean new labor you know there, there was always seemed to be a time at a labor party conference under new labor where you know someone like stephen byers some 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 minister over a fish supper in blackpool would would say to a journalist maybe after a drink or two you know what well you know this union link you know we can we're, we're looking at it we're looking at it and yet and yet they they, they realized they really still needed the unions i if only, I mean, maybe the money was, was a thing. Um, they still needed the money, even when they were getting it away from the likes of Bernie Eccleston, which, of course, they had to give back. Um, but also, the, the unions were useful in internal battles to, you know, because they, they wanted to make deals with policy. So they could be useful for the leadership. So even New Labour recognised there was some sort of point to the unions, even looking at them totally instrumentally, not as a an emotional kind of, you know, it's a labour movement, this is who we are kind of a thing, but actually they're very useful. They've got votes um, at conference and whatever. But but now, you know, as you as you pointed out, you know, union membership is less than a quarter of the workforce. Um, union money is being, you know, the likes of Sharon Graham kind of want to use union money in different ways and not just give the Labour Party a blank check. Um, and and with with the rise of the individual members, you know, the individual membership, you know, unions as a as a as a discrete interest are kind of a, maybe a little bit marginalised. I mean, that was one thing Len McCluskey uh, was was he wanted he he was a he was a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn's politics, but he wanted to retain the union sort of you know interest and voice discrete from the members um, in the party. But I just wonder, you know, you you outlined what was a really useful way of thinking about 
unsuccessful or the nature of the relationship three three factors for a labor government and the unions to really you know, get on and be sort of partners rather than antagonists that you needed virtually a long a long-term conservative government that was had introduced all kinds of policies that were hostile to the trade unions um and that sort of time itself kind of made unions maybe look with greater favour on, on an incoming Labour government. But a Labour government had to give the unions and their members stuff. I mean, Attlee gave them all kinds of stuff. Even even Tony Blair did. But eventually that, that relationship breaks down. Um, so I just wonder, you know, where, as we're kind of where we are now it's in 2022, looking back, is this... You know, it's you were saying it's a kind of a re- renegotiated relationship, but is it is it a relationship that's slowly fading away? I think it's a it, it's a really good and important question. I suppose facetiously, what I'd say is that trade unions have lasted longer than New Labour, and certainly a lot longer than Stephen Byers. So um, <laughs> that's not a terribly uh, helpful you might say academic insight but just a sort of slight uh, slight reaction to that mm. um i mean the i think to some extent it calls into question the future of trade unionism altogether um you know lots of people have predicted over many years that trade unions don't have a future and i mean in fact um you know although numbers have declined they've not they've not declined in in the last few years in the way that um people would have would have suggest that they pretty much bottomed out and I think increased actually at various points over the last five or six years. So, you know, there is a sense there of a, of a stability, uh, I think, in, in, in that. So, the, in a sense, trade unions will, will be around, I think, for the for pretty much for the foreseeable future because they do important work for people. I mean, you know, people don't spend money on trade union membership for nothing. There are lots of people who are convinced of the value of membership, not just actually because, you know, they fight for you on wages and conditions and all those things, but because they'll intervene for you, they'll represent you if you've been unfairly dismissed or whatever it might be. So there's all kinds of, of, of good things that come out of unions. I think in terms of relationship, I absolutely take the point that there's a sense in which um, it could fall away, but I would tend to see some of that as more cyclical. Again, I, I think it's less about a kind of single point of destination than, a, than, a, than again, this kind of constant remaking of the relationship. So I think you could see a situation in which unions will be less, uh, maybe less influential than they've been. Um, but, you know, if you want to be a Labour Party candidate for anything, you still have to tell the Labour Party which union you're in. And I think you have to be a member of a union. Um, so, you know, I'm sure the number of people who kind of run around trying to find a union to join at various times. Uh, but, uh, you know, that that's that's still there. And although, you know, we moved a long way away from the kind of traditional cloth cap image of, of the trade union, um, there's still that, 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 that sense, I think, of, of, of a relationship between the two, in part because some of the values are quite similar. You know, the values of collectivism as against individualism, um, the idea that uh, through working together we can achieve more than working apart, you know, the old phrase, the union makes us strong, I think is something which is very much there in Labour ideology as well. A belief in the power of the state and civil society to do things better on the whole than private enterprise can do it, and certainly more cheaply. You know, there are lots of lots of values, I think, that are really shared between 
Labour and the unions. So, um, as I say, the precise details of that will change over time. But I think some of those things will endure because they are, to me, fundamental to the to the human condition. Really, that seems like a good note to end on. <laughs> it's. Uh... Very profound. It's almost like thought for the day. Um, in many ways. <laughs> um, I know, and an optimistic thought for the day, which is not always how we end. Um. Like very optimistic note, then. Um, I think. I think we might want to draw this episode to a close. I mean, it's uh, looking forward with some degree of optimism, even though there are dark clouds that seem to be hovering around the relationship. The the party conference seemed to go quite quite well for the party but then again it's got huge leads so maybe maybe that will kind of structure how certain trade unions look upon the the Starmer leadership if it looks like it's going to be a government um, and it's offering certain concrete things that will improve people's employment rights which at the moment does um, maybe that's a firm basis for a a Starmer government at least for the first year before it all goes horribly wrong as Labour government relationships according to Andrew and I think rightly so do there are tensions and sometimes it breaks down uh, but anyway let's let's be optimistic and yeah. um, yes and so um, thank you to Andrew thank you to Laura um, thank you to Joe for the technical support without which we could not do this um, and thank you to me for for sharing this because no one else is going to thank me cool. Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Laura. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.